On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, who shot Michael Collins? After the War of Independence, the Anglo Irish Treaty sparked the Civil War in 1922. Michael Collins believed that by agreeing to the treaty, he was signing his own debt warrant. Eight months later, and Collins was proven right when he was killed during an ambush at Bailenham Law in West Cork. Where's the big fellow? So I said, he's round the corner, round the bend. And we both went up there and he had been shot. He was lying there with a very gaping wound in the back of his head. For almost a century, who was responsible for the death of Michael Collins has been a source of conspiracy and conjecture. The only thing we know for sure about Michael Collins is that he died of a Tuesday. There's no death certificate. There was no formal autopsy, no inquest. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and today I'm joined by the Irish independent Senna Maloney to examine the events that led to Collins' death, the myth that has consumed the ambush, and the legacy of his life. Senator Michael Collins was travelling through West Cork. What was he doing in Cork at this time? Well, you've hit on a very good point. What on earth was he doing uh, in, in West Cork in August of 1922? Because just 10 days earlier, he had uh, been amongst the chief mourners at the funeral of Arthur Griffith, very much, you know, the um, inspiration for Irish independence ever since he founded uh, Sinn Féin in 1905. And if you like, the father of the country at that time. Um, arguably, Collins' place should have been in Dublin trying to cement that uh, provisional government and to oversee operations. Collins' real place as, a, you know, as the commanding officer of the Free State Forces was at headquarters, you know. I think he had gone for a couple of reasons. He wanted to carry out a tour of inspection. He also wanted to, I think, show that the Free State was gaining the upper hand in the Civil War. The IRA had evacuated from Cork City, which was now firmly in the hands of regular troops, Free State troops. Collins perhaps felt that it was important for him to be seen to be seen. Maybe he also wanted to 
avail of an opportunity to see his native land, you know, Woodfields and Sam's Cross, all around there, where he was where he was very popular amongst his own people. He was warned time and time again that West Cork was infested with irregulars, which was how the uh, provisional government characterised the IRA who had rejected the treaty and told not to go there. Yeah, effectively a stronghold for anti-treaty forces at that point. Absolutely, and the, and the most dangerous place in Ireland he could have gone. But he brushed off these concerns and reportedly said, ah, yeah, they, they wouldn't shoot me in my own place in my home county. And he was determined to go. And a measure of the recklessness of this trip was the fact that he went in an open touring car. Now he had, you know, he was, uh, the convoy had plenty of free state soldiers in a crossly tender and an armoured car. But Michael Collins was there to be seen and he wasn't in the armoured car, which would have been the safest place. A lot of myths have grown up uh, around the entire instant of the assassination at, at Bailenham Law. And what, what about the, that military escort that he had? So he had a, a, a motorcycle outrider out front. Correct. The Zinacrossi tender, which is basically a, a, a troop carrying truck, as, as, truck. as we would we would recognise it. There's about a, a, a half dozen troops in that. There's then his his own car, his aide-de-camp, Emmett Dalton's with him. And then we have a the famous Schlieve de Man, Rolls-Royce uh, armoured armor car, car behind him. Yeah. yeah. Was that enough, though, considering where, what he was venturing into? I think in in the in the truck there was about twenty men rather than rather than half a dozen, and there were about another six in the in the armored car, and that was that had uh, a Vickers a machine gun mounted on top and had a, a turret and plenty of ammunition in it. At the same time, no matter how well guarded or escorted he was, he was in an open car, rather like the assassination of Franz uh, Ferdinand in at the beginning of the First World War. So he was he was vulnerable as it was, and we have photographs from that last day, you know, of a grinning Collins in the back of the car, and he's he's, he's a pretty attractive target. Himself and Dalton were side by side, and there were two. There was a driver and an aide de camp uh, in front. So when they were moving from moving from Bandon by a back road to back to Cork City in the evening, about seven p.m., there was the, they were they were heading from south to north as it were, and they were about 700 yards short of the village of Bailenham Law, and they ran into a blockage on the road and a mine on the road. So where is Bailenham Law? So it's basically on the road from Bandon to where? It's on the back road, really, from Bandon to McCroom and leads on uh, to Cork City, which is where they were going. Now, a lot of the roads had been blocked or had been exposed or had been already been mined, so they were impassable. And this was part of the ongoing IRA campaign to deny free movement to free state troops. So they were trying to negotiate their way. They, they had maps, of course, but they had made wrong turnings. In the morning, um, they were spotted actually going through Bailenham Law on their way out, going to visit um, McCroom and, uh, and Bandon and strong points of the free state forces in West Cork. And they had made um, a wrong turn and gone, and gone into a place called Neuses Town. And spotting this, the uh, uh, an observer called Dennis Long had uh, informed his local IRA contacts, and the IRA set up an ambush on the ridge overlooking this ravine, effectively leading into Bailham Law. Good strategic point, so to launch uh, an ambush. Absolutely beautiful ambush point. There was a, a stream flowing through there. 
Not all Irish people have been there, but once you go there, you can appreciate what an astonishingly good ambush point it is. The people who are on the ridge can't be seen, this thick undergrowth. You have a nice angle of fire down onto the road itself. And I suppose Dubliners, you know, if you think about the Furry Glen and the Phoenix Park, it's, it, it, it's much like that. The road, the road is, very, is very narrow, but if you're on the high ridge looking down, you have all the advantages. And in fact, you know, the defenders, once they're stuck, they are... Uh, like rats in a trap to a degree and they have you know uh, they, they can fire in self-defense but they have no opportunity of winning that skirmish as, a, as it were What stops them on the road then? The road is said to be blocked and mined and in fact there was an IRA party that was removing the mines and the blockages because 15 minutes before the uh, Collins party arrived the IRA had reckoned that uh, Collins had gone back into Cork by some other route. They'd lain there all day waiting for them, then decided at a quarter past seven on this Tuesday evening in August that no, Collins isn't, isn't coming now and they had called the operation off. So there were some IRA volunteers removing this material when a motorcyclist practically ran into them as he's the spearhead of the convoy. We only heard dif- distant shots distance peals of shots like away in the direction of Cork and uh, General Michael Collins stood up and had a gaze around him. He was loading his rifle in the meantime and whilst he was uh, loading his rifle uh, one long shot apparently like from a sniper rang out and hit him in the side of the head, the right hand side there. And then IRA operatives began even before the tender had stopped or the they began firing in order to, to give cover to those men in front at the north end of the, of the scene. And also the firing was intended to bring back some IRA volunteers who were already dispersed and were moving north towards Bailenamla village. And uh, once the, the, the snap, crackle and pop of, uh, of Lee Enfields was, was ringing out, there were also IRA parties from elsewhere make, and they went towards the scene of the, uh, of, of the firing. Would you have any idea how many men were firing on you at this stage? Well, it was the sultry fire, and from the volume that was there, I would say that there were only about a half a dozen at the most mm. firing rifles. Did you feel at, that, at the beginning of the action that you were in a perilous situation? Oh, yes. It was <laughs> chosen ambush position is always very perilous. And this was obviously a very bad position. There was no, no area for retreat. The only one thing that we could have done was drive on, which I said to the commander-in-chief, I said, drive like hell. There were a couple of people wounded in the, in the incident, which was, it took about half an hour in total. There were various stages to it. But and nonetheless, the fatality. Collins' side does have significant firepower. What, what's, what's happening with the armoured car during this period? Yeah, so when the convoy comes to a halt, as Collins and Dalton and the drivers abandon the touring car, they run across the road to take shelter initially behind a mud bank and they're starting to pull out their side pieces, their side arms, because they don't have rifles. The uh, Vickers machine gun is then opening up with a steady rat at the attackers on the ridge, but it's just firing blindly. And then the armoured car opens up again. It fires off another machine gun belt so that's about 400 rounds have been expended now and part of it is just suppressing fire you know, he, these are not aimed shots they're just to keep the heads down of the IRA attackers while they try and figure out what to do and then um, the Vickers machine gun jam 
This is the famous jam, so. Yeah. And so there's a lull in the fighting. And of course, the IRA men who are now given more opportunity to, to fire don't know why that is. They're, they're thinking, well, is this the end of the engagement? And some of them apparently begin leaving. And at that point, Collins moves behind the armored car and then goes further south himself in the direction which they'd all come from. So now Collins is the man who's further south of all these combatants. On his own, he's in. He's now out in the open. He doesn't have the cover of either the bank or any of the vehicles. Correct. He's completely out in the open. He's a big man, as we know, the big fellow. And he's seeing um, figures, silhouettes on, on the ridge who are apparently attempting to move off to the south. So he is then firing uh, at those people. Now, he's, at, he's out of eye contact of most of the Free State uh, troops at this stage. Some claim to see him going down to one knee to steady himself. I think he's firing his, his, his pistol. There's a whole variety, of course, of, of different accounts. You know, people, some people claim to have seen him. And actually, the, the best accounts probably come from the, uh, the IRA attackers. And some of those claim to see the big man fall. I'd say that he was dead instantly as he did fall. But anyway, General Dalton and uh, the officer that happened to be in the armored car came over to him and uh, rendered him all the assistance that they could. All that they could do was bandage his head. But um, uh, there was uh, little more that, uh, that they could do. And one witness says he heard a shout by a man saying, I put two into him after the man uh, falls. So I called the armored car back and we lifted him and took him onto the side of the armored car and moved behind the armored car with the armored car between us and the their firing position. Got him to the position on the side of the road and under protection of the armored car, we bandaged the wound. I bandaged the wound and O'Connell said an act of contrition to him. We, I knew he was dying, if not already dead. We did the best we could to do. Soon afterwards, people like Sean O'Connell and uh, other officers saying, where the hell is Collins and so on? And they discover the body there and and rush out to retrieve it, at which point they're still being fired upon. Um, when they're hastily loading Collins's body into the armored car, they quickly realize that all life is extinct and their commander-in-chief is dead. Those are the accounts of the of the engagement militarily. We then get into a lot of conspiracy conjecture around what happened to Michael Collins. Tell us about the, yeah. what the wounds. Tell us what they indicate. Yeah. Well, the only thing we know for sure about Michael Collins is that he died of a Tuesday. How he died has never been explicitly set out. There is no death certificate for Michael Collins. There was no formal autopsy. No inquest. He was taken to the to Shanakil Hospital in Cork and laid out, and subsequently his remains were taken by the SS Classic by sea because it was so dangerous. The, the country was in a state of chassis. News of, the, of his death had caused uh, consternation amongst the Free State Troopers. You know, there was a lot of anger and a want of reprisal and revenge taking Michael Collins. But you asked about the nature of the wounds. So the body comes back to to Dublin. There's an examination carried out by Oliver St. John Gogarty, and he describes the wounds. 
And he talks about much of the back of the head gone and a sort of semicircular remaining apparent exit wound below the right ear. Now, important to note here is that there were no photographs taken. We have the famous uh, painting of Collins lying in his coffin. The face is fine. He's got a bandage at the, at the back of the head. The, the question is, how does that physical damage arise? Is it, has he been shot directly in the back of the head, by, possibly by one of his own people? In other words, friendly fire is a, you know, is a green on green because we're all all Irishmen, right? So even even the attackers were Irish firing firing on the Irish, but this would be a free state bullet in, in one theory. Another idea is that there was a ricochet either off a, off a stone or off the armoured car, which which caused a diversion of the bullet to tear the back of the head off him. But of course, that doesn't square with the fact that the armoured car was some distance away at this stage. And also the exit wound indicates that it wouldn't come off the armoured car. So if it was a ricochet, it's got to come off some rock or something, you know. There was anger amongst uh, a lot of the, the people there. By the way, of all the free state people who were there, you know, <laughs> virtually nobody saw him fall, you know, and they were all based on conjecture. So Emmett Dalton subsequently made claims that the IRA were using dum-dum bullets, you know, which, were, which had caused the huge damage. A very large wound, open wound in the back of the head there and it was difficult for me to get a first field age bandage to cover it you know when I was binding it up uh, it was all quite obviously to me with the experience I had it was a ricochet bullet it could only have been a ricochet or a dum-dum mm. there was no exit wound no exit wound no yeah well there was this this one wound there was no entrance wound other than this just a great gaping gaping hole, hole yes yeah. So who shot Michael Collins? <laughs> well, everything I'm about to say is going to be disputed by everybody because there are families and clans all over Ireland who will uh, who have their own competing ideas. And in fact, more than a dozen people have been named as shooting Michael Collins. Very interestingly, uh, the former state pathologist, Dr. John Harbison, was asked in 1989 to examine what records there were of the of the physical wounds, and he took the view that uh, Collins had either been had been shot from in front or while turning his head, so that the bullet came from the left. In other words, from the south. If the entry wound is on the left of his head and exiting under his right ear, he's been shot, arguably, by a group of IRA men who were coming to coming late to the party, as it were, which included a man called Sonny O'Neill. And the most evidence tends to coalesce around Sonny, although we don't know, and probably, very probably Sonny O'Neill himself didn't know. He never specifically, in any documentary form, claimed to have killed Collins. He was interviewed in 1935, again, huge distance from the events. He says, we came accidentally upon the Balanabla thing, those are his exact words from 1935. He calls it, it's taken down as Ballina Blah. And he had military experience though? He had amazing uh, military experience. He had fought with the Royal Irish Rifles in France. World he, War One. In, in World War One, he had been five years with the RIC. He was allegedly a sharpshooter or a sniper in World War One. 
No evidence can be found for this, however, in, in British records. Like half of British records were destroyed in Luftwaffe bombings in the Second World War that were related to the First World War and so on. What about Colin's death at such a, a young age? Do you believe that that has added to the myth, the legend, the romanticization of him as a political figure? Absolutely no doubt about that. George Bernard Shaw made famous remarks about this immediately afterwards. He said, you know, don't waste your tears on Collins in, in lamentation, you know. Just be grateful he did not die in a snuffy bed of old age, filled with the sadness of disappointments and so on. He said, hang out your brightest colours. You know, so that is that is the lustre of Michael Collins, dead at 31 in the broth of his boyhood, you know, showing the same daring that had led him to take on an empire, taking on impossible odds standing, you know, at the bottom of a ravine, you know, fighting at men he couldn't possibly strike and doing it single-handed. Uh, and then he's cut down. Back of the head wound, I think, led to much of the mystery. My thanks to Senna Maloney for joining me today. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Tabitha Monaghan, researched by Siobhan Maguire, with recording and sound design by John Smith clips from RTE. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.